Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I don't know if you can tell in my voice, but I am pumped up up today guys because as promised last week it is time finally to kick off our scheme theme month here on the glory uga podcast i've been teasing this for a month or so we had to push it back a week but here we are officially kicking off our 2022 scheme theme month and for those of you who have been listening for a while You know me by this point, right? You know how much I love to talk actual ball, the X's and O's, the nuts and bolts of football. I love it. I devoured this stuff. I guess, you know, I've I've thought about this in the past. Like, why do I get so into this? And I guess it goes all the way back to my old playing days many, many moons ago now. And a lot of you probably have similar stories, but if you're like me, like I I was a pretty good little player Not great, not elite, but good, solid, right? But that was not because of any sort of athletic supremacy over anyone that I was playing with or against. I guess I was athletic enough to get the job done, but I was a classic case of a guy who, let's be real, I had to live in the weight room and the film room in order to find any way to get on the field and be productive. that That's what I had to do because I just didn't have like the natural physical gifts otherwise to make it happen for me. So yeah, I, I was that guy. Yeah, I had to outwork my teammates, had to outwork opponents in those two areas. That's just the way I had to do things. So naturally, with that being the case, I gained a very early appreciation for both of those things in my life. You know, whether it's football or even now today in my life, I I'm still, to this day, I'm an avid weightlifter, runner, now tennis player, very amateur tennis player. I'm still an avid connoisseur of all things football scheme. I I truly love it. I think it goes all the way back to when I was just growing up playing the sport. And look, I haven't coached in over a decade now, right? Yeah, I think it's it's been over a decade now, but I still go to coaches clinics. I still read articles. I still have subscriptions to coaching databases. 
I still break down tape trying to stay on top of all the new trends that we see each and every Saturday during the fall. And that's the thing. And that's, that's another reason why I love it so much. There's always something new. You know, football, it's constantly evolving, maybe more so than ever over the past five to 10 years or so. But there are always new ideas, new adjustments, counters and counters to the counters. And all of that is just fascinating to me. I cannot get enough of it. So yeah, I love to talk scheme on this podcast whenever I get a chance to. During the season, we try to work it in as much as we can in terms of like breaking down the coming games and those kind of things. Like we, we do a little bit of that, but never as much as I would like to because it just takes a lot of time. We've got other things we want to fit in during the week and it's just hard to fit that in. But during the summer, we have a lot of time. Like there's not a ton going on right now. So this is a perfect time to actually peel back the curtain and dive deep into the things that we see each and every Saturday during the fall. Now we did this last year. We had our very first scheme theme month that turned into basically a scheme theme summer. I think we started it last May, if I remember correctly. And then it went into June and a little bit into July as well because the feedback and and the reception was so positive. You guys seemed to enjoy it and you wanted more of it. So I was like, yeah, if you guys want more of it, that's what we're about. We try to produce things that you guys want. And if that's what you want, let's make it happen. And I love it anyway. So why not? It's great for everyone. But one thing I did learn last year over the course of last summer was I think that less is more when it comes to talking scheme on a podcast specifically because unfortunately, this is not a visual medium. I guess fortunately for you guys, nobody wants to look at this. Nobody wants to see that. No, you don't want that. Trust me. So last year, first time I'd done it, I went real heavy on the scheme talk, like real heavy, real nitty gritty stuff and kind of just inundated people with information, just tons and tons and tons of it, loads of information, those first couple episodes of last summer. And I, I, I get it, guys. Like I was listening back to some of those and I'm like, man, like if I'm somebody who's hearing this for the first time, how can you digest all that? How can you keep up with all of that? Especially when you don't have the visuals to go along with it. If you're like me, you're a, I'm a visual learner. Some of you are probably the same way. And we all are visual learners to a degree. When you're not seeing it and you're just hearing it, your brain has to work harder. That's, that's just science. That's how that works. So not only were you hearing it last year, me just throwing tons of information at you, but you're also at the same time trying to sit there and visualize it on your own and work through it. So I know that's harder to actually comprehend what's happening to retain all that. So with that in mind, this year, scaling back, I don't think that's the right way to say it. But what I am going to do, I am actively trying to simplify things and produce episodes that are more accessible, more streamlined here this summer maybe not as much information thrown into one episode where I'm just overwhelming all of you with information to the point that you just can't retain any of it because that does no one any good. Like who cares what I'm saying if you can't retain it, if you can't actually identify what you're seeing out there on fall Saturdays. That's really what I'm trying to do because I I want you guys to have maybe a, a more profound understanding of what's going on when you watch Georgia play, when you watch general college football this coming season because I'm a big believer on the idea of like the deeper you understand what you're looking at, the more you enjoy it. I think about some of you guys, like maybe your significant others or your kids, and they're sitting there trying to watch the football game with you because they love you, right? And they're sitting there bored out of their mind and they just like can't wait to turn the channel, get up and walk away for the game to be over because they don't understand what they're looking at. It's hard to enjoy something when you don't really understand what you're watching. 
Look, I know all of you guys who listen to this podcast, you know football. You don't listen to this podcast if you don't know football. But we can always learn more. I can always learn more. I I truly, guys, I actively look for more information week in and week out during the entire year. I'm, I'm watching tape. I'm trying to find coaches clinics. I'm trying to find videos. I'm trying to read articles, find whatever I can, reading books. Literally, I have multiple books here, just straight up scheme stuff because I love it. And and I'm always trying to learn more. And the more I find, the more that I learn, the more I appreciate what I'm seeing, the more I understand, the more I enjoy what I'm watching. And I already enjoy it more than really anything in the world. So that's all I'm trying to do, guys. I'm just trying to enhance your enjoyment of the sport. And I think just learning more about what's going on certainly helps with that. So long story short, this year, I'm going to try to do a better job of just kind of narrowing things down to like one particular topic and not really overloading your brain because I just don't think that does anyone any good. And when I sat down to plan this whole month out, all these episodes and what I want to talk about, what we want to focus on, I think it was pretty obvious what I felt we should open things with. You know, 2021, we all know it was a truly historic season for the Georgia Bulldogs, for all of us. The season of a lifetime. It was a dream season in the truest sense of that term. It really was. Not only did we watch and experience Kirby Smart and all of our guys out there deliver us our first national title in 41 years, but we also got to experience along the way one of the genuinely all-time great defenses in the history of college football. Now, I've made it abundantly clear on this show past couple months this offseason that I don't believe our 2021 offense gets the respect it rightfully deserves. In fact, I think we led with that with a question along those lines with our last mailbag episodes last week. But I'm also fully aware that our defense was indeed the driving force behind that championship run last year. Like I'm not an idiot. I, I realize that. I just think our offense was better than people give it credit for. And of course, we know this, we, we, we get it, right? Like we, we all watch the NFL draft. The collection of talent on that side of the ball last year on defense, the players themselves were clearly a major part of that success, that all-time great defense that we saw last year. And Kirby has, and he will continue to tell people that till he's blue in the face. He believes that, I believe, I'm sure most of you believe that. I mean, it's just simple. Like if you have better players than everyone else, you're gonna win a lot of football games. That's kind of just how that works. And yeah, we had better players. Five guys off that defense went in the first round of the NFL draft. So sure, that's obviously a significant part of the story to why our defense was as dominant as it was last year, all-time level dominance. That's a big part of the story. You cannot ignore that. You cannot get around that. And I'm not going to try to do that on the show today. But saying that, it's not the whole story. I've said it many times over the years on this podcast, and I'll say it again for our newer listeners and even for those of you who've been around for a while but might need a reminder. There are three general things that I think you have to do to win at a high level in college football. This is the way I look at it. This is truly the way I look at college football and having a lot of success in college football. Number one is acquisition. You have to acquire the talent. I think this is the most important part. It's the first, most essential part, and I think the biggest, most important part of success at the college level when you're talking about college football. You have to acquire the talent, better talent than everybody else. That's prerequisite number one. Got to have that. Number two, though, and this matters, maybe not as much, but it matters. Once you get that talent, you have to develop that talent. How many guys have you seen us land over the years 
that were raw, right? Like super talented, super gifted, really high ceilings, but raw. Well, you have to develop the talent. Talent has to be developed. So that's a part of this as well. And then number three is deployment. You have to deploy the talent. This is where skiing comes into play. How are you actually going to go about utilizing that talent that you have at your disposal? How many times have you seen teams out there and you watch them play and like, Jesus Christ, man, how is this team not better than they are? They're, they're so talented, but they're not winning football games. Like what is going on here? It's because that talent's not being deployed correctly. It's just not. So yeah, I think it's acquisition, development, and deployment. If you do all three of those things at a high level, you are going to win a hell of a lot of college football games. And no one has ever questioned Kirby Smart's ability to acquire talent. That's always been his calling card. It's always been his ace in the hole. You know, people used to question his ability to develop the talent. You know, they, that was a that was a, a narrative for a long time. That was a talking point of all of our rivals for a long time, all the Kirby haters out there. Well, yeah, he can recruit these guys, but he can't develop anybody. But, I mean, come on. Like, can you really say that now? After our success in the NFL draft over the past couple of years? And, and it's not just getting former five-stars drafted. Look, those guys have to be developed too. A lot of those guys that are five-stars out of high school, it's because they're just like insanely physically gifted. They still have to be developed. So, I mean, that's nothing to scoff at. But it's not just those guys. Also taking guys like Tay Crowder, who was a running back, a, a nobody, like a two-star running back coming out of high school that we decided, you know what? When Kirby got here, let's move him to inside linebacker. And he was drafted. Now, yeah, it was Mr. Irrelevant, the last week in the NFL draft. That dude's starting now. Did that just happen because he got to the NFL and they, and they taught him how to play in the NFL? No, he was developed. He was developed here in Athens and is now a starter for the New York Giants in the NFL. So guys like him, guys like Jordan Davis, who was a three-star, but he wasn't a heavily recruited guy. No one was like jumping up and down when we landed Jordan Davis years ago. I looked at it and I was like, man, it's a big dude. Let's see what he can do. I mean, I don't know. I trust Kirby, but no one was like losing their mind with excitement. Like if, if we end up landing Arch Manning, people are going to lose their minds with excitement and they should. I get that. But no one was doing that with Jordan Davis. And then we turn him into a first round NFL draft pick. And so when you start doing things like that, then all that talk starts to die down. And that's what's happened. Like you don't, and you still hear it from that here and there from like idiots who don't know what they're talking about, who just have like this insatiable desire to rip Kirby smart and try to, to really tear us down as a program because they can't actually beat us on the field. So that's the only thing they can do. And that's fine. Whatever. Some people just won't ever shut up and that's cool. But that's kind of died down for the most part now. So all that's really left for the Kirby haters to lean on for the most part now is the quote, he's just a recruiter. He can't coach narrative. That's the narrative, right? Like remember when Dan Mullen, I know he's, he's gone, right? But remember when Dan Mullen for all those years when he got to Florida, the narrative that was pretty much universally accepted in college football circles, whether it's fan bases, national media. I mean, how many times do you see articles written like this? How many times do you see talking heads blurt this junk out that Dan Mullen equals coaching mastermind, Kirby Smart equals guy who cheats to get players, but a coaching novice, advantage, Dan Mullen. Like that was the narrative. You know it. It drove me insane. I talked about it many, many times on this show and I kept telling everybody who would listen. I mean, nobody wanted to listen to me, but I mean, maybe you guys did. I kept telling everybody, like, no, like, yeah, Dan Mullen's a good coach. Yeah, I mean, I never said he wasn't. He's a good coach. But this idea that Kirby was some inferior coach, Dan Mullen, and all he could do was recruit, I found that laughable. I found that absolutely laughable. And well, today, here I am once again. My goal is to put that final anti-Kirby narrative to bed and show you how scheme adjustments to what we've traditionally done defensively in years past allowed us to activate 
and deploy our elite talent en route to a national championship, our first title in 41 years, and an all-time great defense. Now, it wasn't just Kirby. I mean, obviously, players were a huge part of it, as I laid out. And I say Kirby because he, he, like, look, we know he's not the defense coordinator. He's not, in, I guess, name calling the plays, but he has a major part in that. But we know this is Kirby's defense, right? Dan Lanning was a play caller, outstanding coordinator, did a great job, parlayed that success into the head coaching job at Oregon. Fantastic coach. Love Dan Lanning. So it's Kirby. It's Dan Lanning. It's it's Glenn Schumann. It's it's what Muschamp now. Trey Scott. All these guys together. Not and through the show, I'm probably gonna say Kirby because I don't want to say all their names. But Kirby and staff, Kirby and company, implemented a bunch of key adjustments last year to our defensive scheme to allow all of those playmakers to go and do their thing to actually maximize the talent they had at their disposal. So that's really what we're trying to focus on here today. Now, first off, in order to understand our defensive evolution that we saw last year, I think you need to understand why our defense needed to evolve. And this part isn't rocket science. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't probably already know. You all watch college football. You all have had a front row seat to this offensive revolution over the past decade or so, really kicked into high gear over the past five or six years. But the fact is, it's not 2003 anymore. Football has changed. Offenses have changed. I don't know if any of you have actually seen this show because it's a little bit out there. It is weird, man. But I'm kind of into this show called The Boys. It just started season three, I think last week. It is a wildly entertaining show. I do recommend it if you're not like queasy and you don't mind, um, uh, let's say a rated R TV show. Like if you're cool with that, I think you would enjoy it. But the basic premise of the show, and I don't think this is a spoiler or anything, but the basic premise is that superheroes are not born. They are created in a lab by being given something called Compound V. That's like the superhero elixir, I guess. And that's that's what turns you from an ordinary human into a superhero with full-on superpowers. Well, over the last five to six years, offenses across the country have been given like swimming pool-sized injections of Compound V and are now fully superpowered. And defenses have had to evolve to keep up with that. And like in The Boys, in that TV show... These superpowers of offenses across the country, they're manifested in different ways. They, they show up in different ways. They're not all the same, but they still have some commonalities. And so to understand the first defensive adjustment that we saw last year that I want to talk about today, I think we need to kind of understand what has changed offensively because that's what we're doing. We're reacting to those changes that you've seen this offensive revolution over the past couple years. So again, you guys know most of this stuff, but just kind of give you a quick little recap here. What are some of the changes that we've seen that have changed the way football is played? Well, I think tempo has got to be at the top of the list. I mean, look at last season, nine of the top 11 offenses last year averaged 70 plays or more. And it's not that games have gotten longer, guys. Quarters are still 15 minutes long. In fact, games are technically going by faster because they don't always stop the clock when you go out of bounds unless you're under two minutes. So, I mean, what's happening is that teams are just going faster. They're operating offensively with a quicker tempo. And with that, of course, as it stands to reason, 
You run more plays, you put up more yards per game. In 2009, in the SEC, there were only five teams that went over 400 yards. Fast forward a little bit more than a decade later to last season, and that number is doubled. Yeah, I know there were two more teams league. I get that, but A&M wasn't doing much offensively last year, so they didn't really factor into that. Missouri wasn't doing much offensively last year either. I actually don't think they were either one was one of the teams that were over 400 yards a game, but last year, 10 teams in the league or over 400 yards a game. Again, big part of that is the fact they're going faster, they're running more plays, so you just have more opportunities to put up yards. That's part of it. But it's not just that overall yards are up. We're not stopping there. That's going to happen, as I said, when you run more plays, you're going to get more yards. The bigger change has been the proliferation of the spread passing game. It used to be unusual for a team to run a spread passing offense or an air raid happy offense, right? Like think back to when Mike Leach was at Kentucky. Think back to Mike Leach at Texas Tech. Think back to some of those offenses that Steve Spurrier had at Florida. Those offenses were the exception. They were not the rule. But those kind of offenses now, we've evolved to a point where they are the rule. You're the exception if you are someone like Stanford or Wisconsin, who are two teams, two programs that still regularly will use fullbacks in their offenses. Those teams are the exception now. Like 10, 15 years ago, those teams were the rule. That's what pretty much everybody did. But things have changed over the past decade or so. Teams are quite simply just throwing the ball more and they are better at it. Let me give you some numbers to illustrate that. So again, we're using the SEC here. In 2009, SEC teams averaged 26 pass attempts per game. Last season, SEC teams averaged 33 pass attempts per game. That's a 27% increase. That might not sound like a lot. That's a lot, guys. You're talking about just a little bit more than a decade of football. 27% more across the board in terms of pass attempts. And here's another one for you. So pass plays as a percentage of total plays run in 2009 SEC offenses averaged throwing the ball only 38% of the time. Last season, 2021, that number went up to 47.7%, almost a full 10% increase, which is about, again, like 26% increase overall in terms of percentages from 2009 to 2021. In 2009, there were only two teams in the SEC that threw the ball on average 50% or more of the time. Last season, there were five teams in the SEC more than double the number from 2009 that threw the ball at least 50% of the time. In fact, here's another one. In 2009, there were five teams that threw the ball less than 40% of the time in 2009, which means they ran the ball 60% or more of the time. Last season in 2021, there was only one single team in the SEC, which was actually Arkansas, that threw the ball less than 40% of the time. So what do all those numbers tell us? Clearly, I know it's just the SEC, but that's a small microcosm of all the college football. In fact, around the country, teams are throwing the ball even more in the SEC. So clearly, offenses have become more pass happy. And again, you guys all watch college football every fall Saturday. You know what's going on. Think about what has become the norm. It's spread sets, 11, 12 personnel. The fullback is an ancient relic at this point. And when defenses tried for a while, when this was all new in the college football landscape, when this revolution was happening, defenses tried to defend these new types of offenses the same way they defended old I formation, three yards in a cloud of dust offenses. And they were getting torched by doing so. So things had to change. And it's been a gradual change. 
There's been a lot of back and forth. Defenses have adjusted. Offenses have adjusted to what the defenses have done. Defenses have kind of readjusted. And there's been give and take back and forth. And that's football. And that's part of why I love this stuff. And when we get back from the break, I'm going to dive into how we responded to and adjusted to these offensive changes last year. And in the process, created what I believe is one of the great defenses of all time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So with offenses adjusting what they've done and revolutionizing the game over the past five to six years, again, obviously, defenses have had to respond. Defenses have had to make adjustments. We've been no different. Kirby Smart's defense back in 2009 is very different from what his defense is now. It's been a necessity. We've had to change. We've had to evolve. So what I want to do the rest of this episode is kind of detail some of those changes that we saw specifically last season. And the big overarching theme to all of these defensive adjustments that I'm going to detail today on the show is a commitment to creating negative plays and disrupting offenses. Think back, guys. It wasn't that long ago. It kind of feels that way, but it wasn't that long ago. Think back to that Clemson game in Charlotte early last September. I'm sure a lot of you were like me when you watched that game and you saw what we did defensively. And we're blown away, and not just how we shut down this Clemson offense that for years has been so one of those dominant, you know, offenses that had kind of spearheaded this offensive revolution, but blown away at how we did it, how we harassed DJ Ui Unglele and completely disrupted that offense's operations. And I know that it's popular to look back now and say, well, like, oh, the Clemson offense wasn't actually that good last year. DJU sucked, but I think we broke him. I think we had a lot to do with why that Clemson offense was, like, their offensive line was terrible, yes, and credit to our coaches for identifying that and, and, and exploiting that. But DJ Uyungle was actually good in spot duty. He had two starts back in 2020. He was really, really good. I mean, he lit up a, Notre, a playoff caliber Notre Dame team at Notre Dame in 2020. I know there wasn't really a crowd there, but he lit those guys up 400-plus yards. He's a talented guy. We broke him. I really believe that we broke that dude last year and how we harassed him. That dude was flat out shook. He was shook the rest of the year, and we did that. 
But watching that happen last September in that stadium, Bank of America Stadium, what a what a wonderful weekend that was, man. Get back into actual like a real crowd environment. It was incredible. But that's not what we're here to talk about. But watching that happen, I was in like disbelief. I knew that we'd have I thought we'd have a good defense, but I had just not seen it operate that way. We had never really seen that level of commitment to disrupting an offense in the Kirby Smart tenure. We had never seen anything close to that. And the thing was, it ended up being just a taste of things to come the remainder of the year. And look, I've always respected Kirby as a great defense of mine. Those of you who listen to the show for a long time, you know that. I've made no secret about that. But one of the things that has always frustrated me, and again, I talked about this on the podcast before, was that in his early years here in Athens, I felt like we did not put enough emphasis on being disruptive, creating negative plays affecting the quarterback, just disrupting the offense in general, you know, pressuring the quarterback, tackles for loss, negative plays that put the offense off schedule. We were still operating more so out of the old school, stop the run at all cost philosophy. And we got a bunch of mailbag questions about that over the years. And we talked about it really ad nauseum for several years in a row. I mean, that was a pretty common topic on the show for a while. So yeah, I was like the proverbial kid in a candy store sitting there in Bank of America Stadium last September watching that unfold in front of me. Because I'm sitting like, this is what I've always dreamed of. This is what I've been asking for, and it's actually happening. So sure, yes, we were more committed to creating negative plays and being disruptive last year. Cool. That's awesome. It's good to know that. I think you all saw that, and you guys get that. I'm not telling anything you don't already know. So I think the question becomes here, and what's more important and what I want to focus on today is, how exactly did we do that? What specifically did we change? What adjustments did we make to our defense last year to make that possible, to be more committed to disrupting the quarterback, to create negative plays, all those things? Now, one of the things that had to change for us was how we structured our defensive front. That had to change. For a long, long time, Kirby Smart defenses have been heavy three down odd front defensive lines. And that was because Kirby, coming from the old school of what offenses used to be, put an emphasis on stopping the run first and teams were playing right into their hands with those old school traditional pro set offenses. You know, at at Alabama, he could sit there and what was it, 2008, right? And have old Mount Cody sit there in the middle of that defense, that 3-4 defense, and their base package with big old fat linebackers behind him like Dante Hightower, who absolutely could not play in the SEC today. He would be a liability in space. No way that dude could play and operate. Certainly not as a three-down linebacker. I'm not sure at all. He didn't have the speed to do that. I don't think so at all. But he could sit back there with those kind of players and just smash teams because offenses are trying to just run right at you. And Bama's like, please do that because we're just bigger and badder and stronger than you are and we'll, we'll smash you. We'll crush you. But offenses eventually got smart, got tired of that. They said, huh, why do we keep doing this? And eventually they realized, look guys, we can't out Bama Bama. You can't do that. So why don't we make them play our game, a very different game? And the same thing has happened once Kirby got to Georgia. He came in here largely doing a lot of the same things that he was doing at Bama for a lot of his tenure there as defensive coordinator. And teams... We're trying to force us to defend a different type of offense. And so we've had to adjust. And this has been a gradual process. It didn't all happen in 2021. There were a lot of things that were new adjustments in 2021. But there are some things that we've been doing and kind of like piecemealing, 
year after year trying to add some things to what we do and try to adjust to what offenses are doing. But one of Kirby's first adjustments to defend these spread offenses and the, and the spread offense pass game while also still being able to shut down the spread run game because that's what a lot of these offenses want to do, right? They want to spread you out, get the numbers advantage in the box, and then run right at you. Think about like the Gus Malzahn offenses for all those years at Auburn. You know, they were like the spread-based offense, up-tempo offense. Everyone's thinking, oh man, the, the, the new age spread offense. And I guess formationally, yeah. But when it came down to it, what did Gus Malzahn's offenses want to do? They want to run the ball right at you. They weren't a pass-happy offense. They want to run the ball right at you and take play-action shots off. Remember that the Whirly, I used to call it the Whirly Bird special, where the quarterback would have like, he would fake the handoff to the running back. He'd have a guy come into motion. He'd fake the handoff to him and kind of spin, like do a, a 360 spin around and then like try to chuck the ball vertically down the field. I call that the Whirly Bird special. And they don't really do that anymore because Malzahn's not there. But that's what Auburn was. They just they spread you out. They want to get numbers in the box. They want to make you. They wanted to force you to take your guys out of the box, get numbers advantage there, and then run the ball right at you. And so defense had to figure out, well, how do we handle that? Like we have to be able to defend the pass game if they if they want to spread out and throw the ball out there. Like we have to have guys out there that can defend them. We have to think about that. But they're also trying to kill us when they get numbers advantage in the box. So how can we counteract that? So one of the first things that we did to adjust to that was to move to Kirby's version of the tight front, which is what we call mint. Our mint front is our version of a tight front. And what that is, and we detailed this in the Scheme Team episodes last summer. So you can go back and check that out if you want a more detailed look at that. They're still up there. But a quick little overview here. What is a mint front? So we have a zero tech nose guard. And you have two interior defensive linemen that are playing four eyes on the inside shoulder of a tackle. That's a, that's what a four eyes. A four eyes is a defensive technique where you land up on the inside shoulder of the offensive tackle, and that was a way to account for all the interior gaps against a spread run game with only three defensive linemen, which means you still have eight dudes that you can dedicate to coverage. So you can get more speed on the field and, and defending at the pass and also stay structurally sound against the run at the same time. And that was a great adjustment at the time. We had a ton of success with that mint front with big old John John Atkins back in 2017, right? That was a, a big part of what we did in 2017 in route to an almost national title, an oh so close national title, but to that national title game against Alabama. But the problem always was when you had the mint front, you only have three down linemen there. We just never pressure the quarterback enough. Like that's the problem with tight fronts in general. There's not enough pressure on the quarterback because that's really not an emphasis of what you're trying to do there. You're trying to be structurally sound against the run, against spread offense. It's not about rushing the pass there. It's about stopping the run. And we had some success with it for a while, but offenses adjusted to what we were doing and they were starting to, to hurt us a little bit. So we had to adjust again. And uh, Kirby hurt us, guys. You know, he heard us on this, no, he didn't hear us on this show. Nobody cares about our show, right? But um, he heard and he understood. He didn't have to hear us. He understands. He watches us. He's a smart guy. He figured it out. Kirby realized the same things that we realized. He was seeing the same things that we were seeing. And eventually he decided that we had to figure out a way to get more pressure on the quarterback and create negative plays. You can't let the quarterback just sit back there all day long and operate and do whatever he wants. You can't allow offenses to consistently be on schedule. you got to create negative plays because... Scoring opportunities go way down when you force offenses into negative situations. So mint is great. And we still run our mint front at times. It still has its its role, but we don't do near as much of it. At least we didn't last year. That was one of our big adjustments. Because again, if we're going to try to commit ourselves to getting more pressure on the quarterback and creating more negative plays and being disruptive, it's harder to do that with a mint front. It's just not designed to do those kinds of things. So really, really kind of ever since 2017, We've seen a gradual increase in the amount of four down fronts 
that we've been using. And why is that important? Well, we think that we get more pressure when we're four down front. So you have more pass rush on the field. You have the outside linebacker there that's operating as a pass rusher. You get more bodies on the field that actually can operate. Because in the mint front, you need big bodies that can eat up space on the interior. When you're in a four-man front, you get some more athletic guys out there that can actually be disruptive and uh, rush the passer and just create problems in the back, which generally create havoc. And don't take my word for it, guys. I've got some numbers here for you to fully illustrate this. So let's go back to 2016 when Kirby first got here to Athens, right? So first year in Athens, first defense, we were 65% four down, 35% three down. Well, then we started to realize, you know what? We're having a hard time stopping the run. Think back to 2016. Like we weren't great defensively. We were okay. We weren't great. So Kirby wanted to figure out a way to kind of to be more effective stopping the run, even when these teams trying to spread you out in these new age offenses. So what did we do? Fast forward to 2017, we went heavily towards three down offense. This is really where we started to implement a ton of mint front. Again, that's what I told you guys. 2017, we rode the mint fronts back to the national title game and an SEC title. We were 60% three down, largely mint front in 2017, up from 35% the year before, and only 40% three down. Now, in 2018, uh, went back a little bit, uh, we because we didn't really have the person, we didn't have that guy in the middle as much. So you went uh, 40% three down and 60% four down. We shouldn't have that dominant nose tackle. And then you fast forward to, let's go all the way to 2020 now, we were all the way up to 84% four down, 16% three down. Last year, 79% four down, 21% three down. So clearly you can see the trend has become move away from the mint front, move back to four down so we can create more pressure. We're trying to be more disruptive. And that might seem like a minor change, and I guess in theory it is, but it's big. It's been big for us as that allows us to get guys on the field that can rush the passer more effectively. And also the, the four down fronts, again, just designed more so to be able to do that. When you're in the tight front, that mint front, you're just kind of trying to jam up the middle of that, of that offensive line and stop the run. With the four down front, that's not always the goal. So that is adjustment number one over the past two seasons that we've really well, that we've really seen kick into high gear. You're starting to see the trend since 2017, but it's really accelerated in 2020 and 2021. But that's just the beginning. Yeah, we went more four down last year and back in 2020, but we were also far more committed to an aggressive attacking style defense on really both standard downs and third downs. Standard downs would be first and second downs when teams are generally on schedule. We've been, we were just far more aggressive last year than we really ever had been in Kirby Smart's time here in Athens. You know, in years past, we talked about this a lot on our show. Again, like we talked about how the general philosophy was for our defense to be strong against the run on first and second down, get teams to third and long, and then that's when we bring in our dime package and try to get after teams, get really creative and exotic in what we do with our blitz packages. That was the, the name of the game for a while for us. Yeah, the first couple of years that Kirby Smart was our, was our head coach. Well, teams realized that. You know, after a while, it's like, all right, cool. Well, yeah, we see what George is trying to do. So like, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to throw the ball on first and second down because they knew that on those downs, we were geared up to stop the run and that we weren't really trying to rush the passer. So that's when they felt like they could have success against us. They could drop back and have a pretty clean pocket on first and second down because we had a, we were not doing a good job of converting rush defense to pass rush. We were not doing a good job of that. They didn't want to wait until third and long when we finally decided to make things uncomfortable for them and try to bring pressure. So we had to adjust. And we just simply last year had to become more aggressive. Again, the trend started in 2020. We saw a lot more last year in 2021. We had to get more aggressive, not just on third downs, 
but also on those base standard first and second downs as well. And I got some more numbers to back up these claims, guys. In 2019, we only brought pressure or simulated pressure 33% of the time on first and second down. In 2020, it dropped all the way down to 25% of the time. We only pressured 25% of the time on first or second down in 2020. Last year, more than doubled, up to 53% of the time. So more than half of first and second downs last year, we were bringing pressure. And let's go to third downs, right? So in 2019, we pressured on 47% of third down situations, third and long situations. In 2020, slightly up. 48%. Last season, all the way up to 59% of third downs, we were bringing some form of pressure. So clearly, what we were trying to do was create more disruption. We were simply dedicated to pressuring the quarterback more consistently than we ever had been before under Kirby Smart. But here's another adjustment that I really believe Kirby has been a pioneer of. And, and nowadays, you see it all across the country. Like it, It's not uncommon. In fact, it's more common than, it, than not these days. But I, I really believe our defenses under Kirby Smart were one of the first that I really saw make this a regular part of what we do. And what I'm talking about is, is what we call simulated pressure. And you guys have seen this. So you're literally trying to simulate that pressure is coming. And sometimes that pressure comes, sometimes it does not. But you've seen this. You all have seen this. You've seen us do it every single game and almost, I don't know, I'd say like every other snap at least. And what we're doing with simulated pressure is that we got linebackers, we got, we've got safeties, we've got star defenders showing that they're coming, that they're bringing pressure. Like they're like triggering, like they're about to come, like they're just up there line of scrimmage about to blitz. And then when the ball snaps, some guys come, some don't, some drop, some blitz. It just depends. And, and we change it up. We do a really good job of keeping offenses off balance. And like, like I've said many times before, guys, we did this more this year. We did, we brought, we actually blitzed more than we ever have before. When I say blitz, I mean we bring more than four pass rushers. Like if you have four guys rushing the passer, to me, that's not a blitz. Now you can change up who those guys are. Maybe you have a Trayvon Walker who drops into coverage and you have Nicobe Dean who's blitzing. It's only four pass rushers. To me, a true blitz is when you bring more than four, you bring five or six guys. And we had not, we really did not do much of that in the past. We did it more so this year than we had in the past. But really what simulated pressure does, what makes it so difficult for offenses, is you truly do not know who is coming and who's not. Like You know not everybody's coming, but you don't know who is and who's not. Like You might say, I got this guy, and this guy loops around in front of you, and it's just, it makes it really difficult for offenses to actually pick up that pressure because the pressure's coming from depth, and it's not like forever, it was just guys in the line of scrimmage that were rushing the passer. And that's easy. You know, you know this guy in front of you is trying to rush the passer, you stop him. But you don't know who's coming, and they're coming from depth. And you have to operate in space to stop these really athletic guys. It's really, really hard. And we really turned up the simulated pressure. Again, we've done it in years past. You've seen us start to build on that. But we turned it up to a whole new level this year. I mean, we brought that to an entirely new level in 2021. And when we come back from this last break, I'll explain exactly how we took that to a new level last year. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, so that brings us to our next adjustment. Like I am, Kirby is very open about his belief that players matter more than any other element of football success. I led the show with that, talked about that. You guys have heard me say that before. And Kirby, you've heard him say that before. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that man repeat a favorite mantra of his, players over plays. And sure, yeah, I mean, it it means exactly what you think it means. But when Kirby says that, he's also saying something else. When he says that, he also means that you have to feature those players. It's the old cliche of good coaches adjust their scheme to their players rather than making their players adjust to their scheme, right? Like that's, what, that's what makes a good coach. Take with the players you have and, make, and fit your scheme around them. Like If you've got a bunch of round holes and square pegs, well, you don't try to make the pegs round. You make the holes square. Offensive coaches talk all the time about you know, we've got to get this guy X amount of touches and this guy X amount of touches. You know, fans lose their minds when their best skill players don't get enough carries or enough targets, whatever it is. And I think rightfully so most of the time. Well, what Kirby and our defensive staff have done is that they've evolved and realized that we need to adopt that same logic in our approach to defensive football. So in looking at our defensive personnel last year, you know, our coaches, they get together, they get in the meeting rooms, they try to break this down, and they're trying to figure out, okay, how can we fit these pieces together? What we know we want to do is be more disruptive and create more negative plays. Well, how can we go about doing that with the players that we have on this year's roster, this group of guys? And what Kirby and company realized is that we just happen to have these three monsters at inside linebacker that were all fantastic blitzers. They excelled at that. And they were far better at it than the players at the positions that we have historically relied on to pressure the quarterback. Historically, I know you think like outside linebacker, demons of end is like pass rushers, but really historically under Kirby, at least since he's been here in Athens, We've been heavy on DB pressure, especially from that star position. But over the past couple of years, the guys blitzing from those spots just haven't been as effective, whether it was Mark Webb, Tyreek Stevenson, whoever, those guys just weren't as effective blitzing off the edge like that from that star position as some of the earlier guys that we had at that position, like the Mo Smiths, those kind of guys. So Kirby, he looked at those numbers. He saw, okay, well, our, our success percentage on blitzing the, the star position and actually creating any sort of havoc and getting pressure on the quarterback, it's not great. And what he saw was that those numbers weren't great, but our inside linebackers, when they were given opportunities, they were far more effective when given those opportunities to rush the passer. So what did we decide to do? We adjust. And we went all in on inside linebacker pressure last year. Guys, listen to these numbers. Here's some more numbers to illustrate this for you. Our inside linebacker pressure percentage went up from 56% in 2019. So this is the percentage of blitzes that were from the inside linebacker position. And this is all downs, first and second downs, standard downs, and third down pass downs as well. Our percentage of pressure, like blitzes, went from 56% 
from inside linebackers in 2019, slightly up to 59% in 2020, and then skyrocketed all the way to 80% in 2021. 80% of our called pressures were from inside linebackers last year. Now again, think about it. It just makes sense. Think about what you saw last year. Think about the Clemson game and how we unleashed those guys. We'd seen it before. We'd seen our inside linebackers blitz, but not like that. Nothing like that. In 2019, guys, our inside linebackers, all the guys that played inside linebacker for us that were released in the rotation, go Monty Rice, Tay Crowder, Nicobe Dean in there a little bit, Quay Walker in there a little bit. In 2019, all of those inside linebackers accounted for a grand total of four sacks. Last year, just our top three linebackers, Nicobe Dean, Quay Walker, Channing Tindall, accounted for 13 sacks combined. We more than tripled our sack production for that one inside linebacker position in two years. How did we do that? Why did we do that? Because we realized the players that we had at that position needed those touches. They need those opportunities because they were better at it. And we made the adjustment and we went all in on those guys being the ones that we were using to blitz and pressure the quarterback. And we honestly did it better than I've ever seen any defense in history do it. I haven't seen every defense ever, but the ones that I've seen, I don't know if I've seen, I don't believe I have seen a single defense that's been more effective in using their inside linebackers to pressure the quarterback the way that we did last year. And again, sure, those guys are fantastic talents, incredible players. They deserve a ton of the credit, most of the credit, sure. But the fact remains, we've had talented inside linebackers before, but they haven't put up that kind of pressure production the way we did last year because we had not let those guys loose. We changed our scheme. We changed how we deployed that elite talent in a way that helped us not just be a good defense. We've always been a good to great defense for Kirby Smart, but in a way that allowed us to become not just an elite defense, but one of the great defenses of all time. And that does not happen unless Kirby Smart and the rest of the defensive staff don't humble themselves, understand there's things that they need to do to adjust and adapt and evolve and make those changes and help us get to that point. So yes, inside linebacker pressure and an increased reliance on simulated pressure, those were two major adjustments along with going with more four down looks, but there's far more to it than just that. We could stop there. I know I told you guys I was trying to simplify things and streamline a little bit for you, and I am, trust me, I am, but I wanna continue to go on just a little bit further here and explain a few more ways that we adjusted and tried to create more consistent pressure and disruption for opposing offense. So yes, our inside linebackers were a thousand percent key parts to our defense becoming more disruptive. In fact, maybe you could say the key part, perhaps. But we also happened to have three dudes on the defensive line get drafted in the first round, and we saw them create negative plays all year long as well. Now, was that just because they were awesome and incredibly talented, like our inside linebackers? Sure, yeah, again, that's a big part of it. You can't deny that. There's no getting around it. But just like our insanely talented inside linebackers, those guys had to be put in position to allow their talents to flourish and eventually dominate. So not only did we move to more four down looks, which is a great start, we also adjusted how we let those defensive linemen operate. For the longest time, going back to his days, I guess even at LSU with with Saban, but certainly at Alabama in those early years when Saban got there, forever Kirby was kind of a two-gap guy. And what I mean by two-gap guy is you have your defensive linemen, their job is to engage, 
control the, the blocker in front of them, and you're basically reading, okay? You're controlling two gaps, especially the nose tackle, that nose guard, that zero-tech nose guard. You strike, you control, and you read. You can go either way. You know, the the, the weak A gap, the strong A gap, but you've got two gaps there. And those guys are hard to find. They can really do that effectively. Jordan Davis is a guy that could do that. Mount Cody back in the day was a guy that could do that. But for a long time, that's what Kirby preferred. And we will still do some of that. Don't get me wrong. Still sometimes. Like, Kirby will still tell you, and I agree with him, you still have to be multiple. You, like, all these things I'm telling you, like, we didn't do them exclusively, but we, we adjusted these things and, and did far more of some things that I'm talking about today on this show. But you still can't be exclusive with doing that. You have to be multiple in what you do. So we still did some of that, just like we still use some mint front, just not as much as we had. Because, I mean, we just, we just largely moved away from the two-gap stuff, and that was a big difference. This year... What we started to do, I guess we started to do this some in 2020, but we really leaned on more so into it last season, is we created different modes of operation for our defensive linemen. And I use the word modes intentionally because that's what our coaching staff calls it. So we had three general modes for our defensive linemen to operate in. You had the old school base mode, which is where you're kind of striking the block, stacking the fits, playing fundamental football, controlling the blocker in front of you, playing really disciplined football, that style, which is, again, what Kirby's done a lot of traditionally. But what we've started to do more this year is lean on what we call stunt mode. And this is where you want your defensive lineman to go be disruptive, create those negative plays, get after the quarterback, create havoc, all those things that we've been wanting to see our interior defensive linemen and just our front seven in general do more of. But we hadn't really kind of taken the leash off of them that much. This year, we changed that. Stunt mode became really our primary mode of operation on the defensive line. And then we also had jet mode, which is kind of like stunt mode on steroids, where the goal is like, just go get the quarterback. Like, go get that guy. Disrupt him, affect him, get him on the ground. So again, base mode, striking blocks, stacking fits, playing old school fundamental football where you're controlling the blocker, playing sometimes playing two gaps, not necessarily all the time. Uh, stunt mode, going to be disrupted, creating those negative plays, and then jet mode, which is like, dude, pin your ears back, get the quarterback. And again, this is another example of players over plays. You know, I used to say that I wish guys like Tyler Clark, like we would let those guys loose a little bit more and do more of this kind of thing. And we occasionally would with a guy like Tyler Clark, but I, I always said, you know, years ago, I, I felt like Tyler Clark was more of a one-gap guy. He was a, a quick, explosive, penetrative-type defensive lineman, kind of in the vein of, of Jalen Carter, like a poor man's Jalen Carter in a way. And when we allowed him to do those things, I thought he was very disruptive. We just didn't really take the leash off of him enough. Well, Kirby understood that, and he's not as stubborn as a lot of you think that he is. I'm not saying he's not stubborn at all, but he's not as stubborn as people would generally think this guy is. He realized, yeah, like we need to do more of that, especially when you have guys that we had last year, guys like Jalen Carter, Devontae Wyatt, Trevon Walker. Two of them already went in the first round of the NFL draft. Jalen Carter is almost certainly going to go in the first round of the NFL draft, knock on wood, barring injury. And of course, you got the big man himself, Jordan Davis, big dude, but also can move for that size. I saw that at the NFL combine, got himself drafted in the first round as well. So when you have a defensive line consisting of those kind of dudes, yeah, what you got to do is get out of their way and let them do what they can do and allow them to do that more consistently. Let them off of those leashes. And we did a lot more of that this year. And there's always a risk in doing that because when you allow those guys to get loose and, and, play stunt mode and jet mode and try to be disruptive. Well, you can lose gap integrity and create running lanes, but you're gambling on the idea that, 
well, I'm just going to blow things up before the bats can hit those lanes. And most of the time it worked out that way for us. There's occasionally we might get gashed here or there. Uh, Jalen Carter is a guy who, I mean, I don't want to say he freelances. We just allowed him to do a lot of stunt mode where he was just free to like go try to make plays. And there are some times where he left his gap open and created running lanes and they hit us for a couple of plays. But it's far more effective. I think it's far more beneficial for us than it, than it hurt us in the long run. So yeah, we became far more of a stunt mode team this year. And that doesn't always mean you're running a game or a classic stunt, like a twist. And when I say stunt mode, what that I mean, it could mean you're actually running an old school stunt, like a twist. But really when we use that term stunt mode, what our coaches are really talking about is our guys just penetrating, getting vertical and penetrating. Take a flat step, get vertical, penetrate. Think Jordan Davis, if you want a visual, okay, Visualize this right now. Think Jordan Davis moving laterally in the backfield just by the line of scrimmage, devouring runners. The Peach Bowl was one that stands out, kind of comes to mind for me. Remember that game against Cincinnati in the Peach Bowl? There was, a, I want to say, maybe the third quarter of that game. I can't remember exactly the top of my head, but there was a play that really stands out to me where I think that was the play where it was like, oh, Jordan Davis is like an athlete. Like this dude can flat out move. He always knew he was this big space eater, but was like, oh, that, that guy can actually run. He can move. Like he's a freak out there. And we saw it a lot more this past year with that Peach Bowl game against Cincinnati that really stands out to me. That is stunt mode, okay? That's what that is. And so again, this is just different ways to figure out how our front, our defense can become more disruptive and create more negative plays. In stunt mode, in jet mode, were two ways that we were able to accomplish that last year. Two more ways that we were able to accomplish that last year. Two more adjustments. And finally... To wrap this up today, we're getting towards the end. I know I've thrown a lot of information at you guys, so I promise we're wrapping this up, but I just want to finish the drill here. I'm going to give you two more quick adjustments that we made to enhance our disruptive abilities as an overall defense. So for most of Kirby's career, I mean, I guess really all of it, he wanted his outside linebacker in a four-man front. So you play an outside linebacker in a four-man front. Really, you're like the fourth-man line of scrimmage, right? You're not necessarily down in a three-point stance, but you're the fourth-man line of scrimmage, right? You're, you are that fourth man. And last year, that was primarily Nolan Smith, who was so, so good for us last year, by the way. I, I really don't think, like, there were so many good players in our defense last year, and they all deserve so much credit. But I really think Nolan's a guy that doesn't get near enough love and credit for how good he was for us last year. I know the sack numbers weren't necessarily there, but he did so much for us. Again, we were using our inside linebackers more than a guy like Nolan to pressure the quarterback. This year, I think that might change. I think Nolan might, might be let loose to do a little bit more and might have that big year himself to work himself in the first round potentially. But for most of his career, Kirby has won the outside linebacker in the four-man front, so Nolan last year, to align in a six technique, which is head up on the tight end. And the reason you want that to happen is because, or he wanted that to be the way they align, is because it's just more conducive to stopping the run because you're closer to the interior. He didn't let the outside linebackers get too wide in those four-man fronts because, again, stopping the run is the primary objective on standard downs, and the further you are from the interior of the line of scrimmage, the harder it is for you to actually be a factor in stopping the run. So we had them playing in a six technique, which, again, is head up on the tight end. Well, last year... In accordance with our newfound commitment to creating more negative plays and disruption for offenses, we allowed those outside linebackers to play wider in a nine technique. A nine technique is the outside shoulder of the tight end. Well, why does that matter? Why does that help us become more disruptive and create more negative plays? Well, because it's easier to rush the passer from that technique the wider you are from line of scrimmage. And when I say nine techniques aligned to the outside shoulder of the tight end, 
That also includes if the tight end's not actually in line. Tight end might be flexed out. So if you're the outside linebacker and you're supposed to be in a nine technique, which is the outside shoulder of the tight end, and the tight end's not actually physically present in that spot, you just align where you think the outside shoulder of the tight end would have been. So you're just aligned further away from the interior of the line of scrimmage. And that helps you create havoc and create pressure on the quarterback because you're further away from the tackle, which means you gotta, you're making them operate more in space. And guys, there's one thing that offensive linemen don't want to do is operate in space. They don't have the footwork for that. Those guys aren't built for that. They want to be in a phone booth with you. That's where they can exert their power over you. Out in space, you got the advantage. So by allowing our outside linebackers to be a little bit more removed from supporting against the run, you were, we were actually allowing them to be more effective in creating pressure and creating havoc in the backfield. And that might be a small thing. And I, and I think, it, I guess it is compared to some of the other things that we've talked about today. It's a minor adjustment, but it was still another adjustment that paid big dividends for us and played a role in this defense going down in history as, again, one of the all-time great defenses in college football history. So that's another little small adjustment there. But we aren't quite done yet. I say the best one for last. Or like, I don't know if it's the best one. I saved this one for last because I'm fascinated by this. I've been waiting for something like this for a while now. One of the big reasons offenses have become so dynamic and so tough to defend in recent years is really just the sheer volume of options that an offense just goes to the line of scrimmage with. They have a lot of options, both post-snap options, pre-snap options. They have a lot of options to work with. Old school pre-snap audibles and kills, those are still alive and well, but those are pretty basic. Those aren't new. What's really revolutionized things are RPOs, primarily post-snap reads by the quarterback and wide receiver to give the offense answers to really whatever a defense does. Like it could be, for example, an inside zone run tagged with a, a just a quick slant behind the linebacker. It could be a bubble screen attached to a run if the nickel gets too nosy or the inside linebackers don't wide enough on the wide receiver. There's really just so many different ways to run them. And that will be, here's a little spoiler alert, that will be a theme of episode two next week. But the bottom line is life has become difficult for defenses because offenses they just have answers, man. They have answers for whatever you do on defense. That's tough. Like gone are the days an offense goes to line of scrimmage. They break the huddle, go to line of scrimmage, and then they're just running whatever play is called by the coach come hell or high water. That's what I did pretty much back in high school. That doesn't happen anymore. Now as a defense, we're in the situation where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's just reality. That's just life for defenses in the modern age of college football. And I won't give defenses credit. They've done a good job adjusting to RPOs and devising ways to defend them, or I guess I would say at least contend with them. You can't really stop them. It's hard to like flat out stop them, but at least contend with them. And we detailed some of those ways last year. Again, you can go back and find that episode uh, last summer. Look at last May, last July, June, whatever. They're up there. They're still up there for you guys. But what I've been really waiting for is for defenses. I'm an old defensive guy myself. I've been waiting for defenses to start running RPOs of their own, or at least like their own version of RPOs, something akin to offensive RPOs where you react based off what the offense does. So that's what RPOs are for offense. They react what the defense does. What the defense does, they have an answer for. You're just a reactionary, basically. And we've seen defenses kind of dip their toes in the water with this kind of stuff over the past few years. I think the best example that I've seen the past couple years really become prominent in college football, at least for defenses, is the Green Dog Blitz. 
Uh, and a lot of you probably know what I'm talking about, but for those of you who aren't familiar with the green dog, that's basically a delayed inside linebacker blitz. I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be an inside linebacker, but it usually is. It's whoever is in man coverage and is assigned to cover the running back in man, right? So if it's, again, usually the inside linebacker. So the inside linebacker, let's say you have man coverage on the running back, and if you're the inside linebacker, you read the running back. If the running back releases, then you got him in, you got him in pass coverage, right? You, you follow him, you trail him, you go wherever he goes. But if that running back never releases and instead stays in to protect, he's inserted into the protection plan, that inside linebacker who had that running back in man coverage, well, he doesn't have to cover the running back because the running back's not running a route. So now what do you do? You don't just stand there like an idiot. You insert as an additional pass rusher late in the process, and you are basically a delayed blitzer. And you've seen teams do that with a lot of effectiveness lately. We've done that. Like, that's something that we've utilized in the past. A lot of teams do that. That's not uncommon anymore. So that's kind of like when you start to see teams dipping their toes into RPO, like defensive RPOs, which I mean, I know it's not the right phrase. I don't know what to call them, but they're like the defensive version of RPOs. But we started to do something this year that I haven't really seen many teams do, or at least I'm not like aware of many teams doing this. And that is running something that we call natural games. Remember, a game is just another term for a stunt. So if you're stunning, you're twisting, slanting, whatever, game is another way to describe this. It. the same thing. A game is a stunt, right? In defensive line parlance, that's what that is. And there are different ways that we do this. And look, if we got real deep into the nitty gritty, we could talk about the reads that can trigger these natural games and all that kind of stuff. But man, that's that's going a little too deep. That's what, that's what I was talking about at the outset of the show. I don't want to go into like calculus. We're not going to do that today because that's just too much. I don't want to overwhelm people. Maybe we'll come back and talk about that a little bit more in detail later on. But natural games, let's just at least suffice with this. Natural games are instances where two defensive linemen stunt in tandem. But here's the catch. That's not unusual to see defensive linemen work together in tandem stunting. You know, one, one goes first, one twists behind them. There's all sorts of different ways you can do that. That's not what's unique. What makes our natural games unique is that those two defensive linemen are stunting in tandem without a stunt being called by the defensive coordinator. It's just like when the offensive coordinator calls an inside zone but tags it with an RPO slant behind the linebacker. The quarterback reads that linebacker. Depending on what the linebacker does, he's either going to hand it off or pull it and throw the RPO. Just like that with a natural game, the two demons of linemen to one side are reading whether it's run or pass. In a nutshell, again, it's more complex than that. It can be more complex than that. It can also be as simple as that. But in a nutshell, it's what they're doing. They're reading whether it's run or pass. Those two demons linemen on the same side. If it's run, they just continue on with whatever was called by the coach. But if they read pass, they have the ability to stunt and twist in tandem on their own without the coach calling it. It's an adjustment. It's a post-snap adjustment on the fly. It's a post-snap adjustment read on the fly. Again, very similar to an offensive RPO. Now, for us as fans, it's really hard to know the difference, whether it was a called stunt or if it was a natural game. But here's the way I would I would look at it. I would venture to say that a lot of the times you see a stunting like that on standard down pass plays, it's probably a natural game. I'm not saying that we don't call stunts and games on, on standard downs. I'm not saying that we don't do that. But that's something we do a lot more of traditionally on third down. So if you see more of that on first and second down, probably more so a natural game where they just read pass and they're like, okay, now let's work together and let's create pressure. Let's do that. And that's something we had a lot of success with this year. In fact, I mean, it was hugely successful in unleashing, again, freakishly talented defensive linemen, athletic, explosive defensive linemen who were 
super talented in their own right, but you have to deploy them in a way that maximizes their talents. And this was something that was hugely successful in allowing us to do that. I mean, it really is. It's really, as far as I see it, it's how I look at it. I think it's a defensive version of the RPO and I freaking love it. And I'm so crazy excited to see where it goes from here. I think we're just scratching the surface of what you can do with those things. But I think that is a big step we took in that regard last year. But again, like everything else we've talked about today, it was all in the name of creating more havoc, creating more negative plays, something that we commit ourselves to, to a degree that we never have before. And as we all saw, it was key in producing one of the truly all-time great college football defenses. So to recap real quick here, what are we talking about today? All right, so again, name of the game, theme, pressure, being more disruptive. How do we go about doing that? Well, we transition from heavy three down to far more heavy four down fronts. We start to pressure, just pressure in general more, even on first and second down, which we had not done a lot of traditionally. We start to use more simulated pressure. When we do pressure, we're blitzing inside linebackers far more than ever before, accounting for 80% of our pressure packages last year. We changed our mode of operation on the defensive line. We went with far more stunt and jet mode, allowing those guys to be disruptive, unleashing them, so to speak. We started to widen the outside linebacker in the four-man front, giving him more of a chance to rush a passer from the edge. And we started to introduce these natural games that allowed us to adjust to whatever the offense was doing on any given play. So when you put all that together, what do you get? You get a national championship, the first one in 41 years. And I know you're never going to shut up all the haters because that's what they do. They just hate by definition. There's always going to be those people out there that say, Kirby Smart can't coach. He's a terrible coach. He's just a good recruiter. And that's fine. Let them talk. But if they actually watched football, if they understood what they were watching, if they understood the things that we talked about here today, they'd realize just how idiotic they sound when those things come out of their mouths. But all right, guys, that does it for the very first 2022 edition of our Scheme Theme Month, but we have far more to talk about. This is just the opening salvo. We'll be coming back next week. Again, we're talking a little bit about RPOs, especially in reference to the tight end position. We know that Brock Bowers was a beast for us last year. We talked about 12 personnel, 13 personnel. I was begging for that all last year. And so I want to dive into tight ends and specifically how we can use the tight ends in the RPO game, how we have used them and how we can continue to use them effectively in the RPO game. So that's coming up for you guys next week. Curtis will be back with me later on this week for our second episode of the week where we will be once again diving into the listener mailbag. We've got a bunch of good questions already, but if anything comes to mind, any questions that you would like us to cover, please feel free. We encourage you. Let us know what those questions are. You can hit us up on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Instagram as well. And just look up glory UGA podcast. And we are there for you guys. Just let us know. But thank you guys. I love this. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot of information. And I know I have a tendency to, to go too in-depth. I tried to streamline it. I tried my best. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any questions on this or anything else that we talk about the rest of the month, please do not hesitate. Don't be a stranger. Reach out. Let me know. And uh, we can talk more in-depth about it. But thank you guys. We'll be back later on this week. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>